Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. Hello, I'm Connor Falkland and this is Driving Life. In this episode, I chat to Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. He was very good to welcome us into his rather plush office in Merrion Street, very much at the heart of official Ireland. So how did a Northside dub go from selling nappies by the van load to the huge job that he has now? And of course, what's he going to do with the money? Let's head over to Merrion Street and find out. But before we get going, I'd like to take a moment to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Doro Mobile Phones and Expressway Buses. Two great companies in very different areas. They're very good to support us, so thank you very much. Don't forget to check out earlier episodes and other chats. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. So now let's go and meet Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue. Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Public Expenditure, very busy man. Thank you very much for taking the time for a chat. Delighted to do, O'Connor. Looking forward to our discussion. In in what a setting. We're 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 in your office. Um, you've broken out the, the the good cups. I feel very privileged. Um, it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful space. There's a bit of your personality in it. There's a line of bobbleheads there. Sci-fi bobbleheads. What are they doing there, Pascal? Well, look, it's great to have you in here, Connor, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, if I could paint a little picture of where we are at the moment for your listeners, uh, we're here in my office in uh, Marion uh, Square, mm-hmm. and it's a very wet morning. It is uh, raining away. Uh, it is indeed. And if you look out one window, you can see the department of the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach's office. Very good. And then another window over here, right in front of my bobbleheads, which I'll say a bit about in a moment. You have the office of the Attorney General. Right. And then just down below, you have the office then of the Minister for Finance, Minister McGrath. Uh, and I'm really lucky to be here. I'm very privileged to have been in this building now for a number of years. Mm. But one of the things you do like to do, because I spend an awful lot of time in this office yeah. uh, doing my work and discharging my duties, is just uh, bring a little bit of your personality and foibles to yeah. us. Uh, and also a reminder uh, never to take you know, remember life outside of politics yeah. and have a little bit of your own lightness and humour in it. So you're right, there's a collection of bobbleheads over here. So you listeners may want to know what I a bobblehead s- is. Well, well, I'm, I'm looking at them bobble there. They're, they're, they're pl- plastic figurines, quite large ones. You see little ones. These are about, I don't know, five, six inches tall. And they're lined up like soldiers. I wonder there's a little t- touch of OCD about the order in which you have them. And there's, I see Star Wars characters there. I see Darth Maul. Uh, I see Yoda well, and, and you, little cute Yoda. You from... are ahead of ah. the normal kind of uh, standard of commentary on my bobbleheads because you're the first points. person ever to identify Darth Maul. So ah, you're doing very well, very well doing I that. See, I see Boba Fett uh, as well. Boba right. Fett is there, and then Baby Yoda, or to give him his proper name, Grogu, yeah, is just I there prefer, as well. I preferred Baby Yoda. First Indeed, and uh, they're just a little collection, and uh, every, every year I buy two or three more, and they build up. And uh, I, I started collecting them, actually, when I came into politics. Oh. 
and uh, they have uh, attracted a little bit of interest, particularly in the Star Wars fraternity, um, which is a significant one here in Ireland. Well, there you go. So we scored some nerd points. And, you know, I guess given the responsibilities that you've held in government, uh, a certain nerdish quality is probably required if somebody's minding the books. Um, so maybe perhaps you come across as a little bit of a serious guy sometimes, um, notwithstanding the, the, mm-hmm. the foibles. But come here, how did you wind up there? Because you are not one of these um, traditional political families. You're Northside Doug. Um, you were a good student, mm-hmm. kind of earnest young guy, but there was never any politics in your background. No, there? and there was no master plan to ever to end up doing any of this. I'm you not were. one of these people who was dreaming about being a, a TD or a minister uh, or anything else in the early 20s. I didn't a, have any or plan. Or a student activist with a railing no, to chain yourself to. Nothing I didn't like know. I, there's, no, there's no railing that bears my imprint. <laughs> uh, I, uh, my mum and dad... Uh, were very interested in current affairs, mm. uh, but not politically active or motivated. I so not one of these civil war households. Uh, not the at all. Only in a kind of more recent life did I ever even dream of asking uh, my mum and dad how they would have voted, yeah. and they would have voted in different ways at different elections. So I do have a. A very clear memory of the 1987 election, going with my mum to uh, the polling station in what was then my primary school, St. Bridget's and Blanchard's Town. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the day begun um, with uh, the paper coming into the house around seven in the morning, popping in the letterbox. And uh, my dad would read the paper and then he'd bring it up to mum and mum would have a quick glance at us. And the radio was always on in my house. Yeah. Always on. And it's actually one of the reasons why, for me, out of all the different communication media that are available to us these mm. days, uh, Connor, the radio and podcasts, still for me... It's one of the great formats. It's one of the great ones. Yeah. And that is undoubtedly linked to the fact that the radio was on in my home uh, yeah. every hour of the waking day. Do you know, my, my, my parents were the same, and I've been told subsequently that we were a little bit unusual, but my parents like that were kind of floating voters, critical yeah. of everyone. Certainly no um, kind of DNA loyalty to Fianna Fáil. Fianna Sa- Fianna same as with me, and really my interest in politics came from an interest in current affairs that my mum and dad had. Yeah. Uh, but they uh, uh, encouraged my interest in politics because mm. they saw it as being a, you know, a good thing to do yeah. and a good interest to have. Uh, but they certainly uh, never had any uh, a kind of uh, aspiration within them for me to you know, be a politician or they wanted right. me to become one or anything like that. It just and, happens. And, you know, you're prosperous and obviously a smart youngster. And then you, you spent a bit of time as a sales rep in the UK. Based I sure did. Yeah. So after I finished up in college, I'd done a couple of internships with Procter & Gamble, which mm. is this amazing uh, consumer goods company, yeah, a huge company. American company. And I, I started off with them uh, with uh, selling Pampers and Dad's washing powder. Uh, to uh, independent cash and carries in East London and Birmingham. The glamour, the glamour. It was as far from glamour (laughs) and as far from uh, an office like this as you can imagine. And it was fabulous Hmm. because I have, by that point, been lucky enough uh, to have gone to college. Hmm. And really what that was, was the next phase in my education. And I can only see that now because at the time I thought selling 
a truckload of pampers to a cash <laughs> and carry was the most important thing in the world. Wow. And cash being the key word ca- for a cash being, cash being king, and these were really successful, prosperous, large businesses yeah. in these great trading cities. And I spent, as I said, the best part of two years. Mm. I remember getting my first mobile phone and my Vauxhall right. Cavalier was red. <laughs> and uh, I was on the road doing that. And it was a tough and demanding, yeah. fabulous experience and the making of me. Fantastic. And then, then I was with Procter & Gamble then, uh, then for the best part of 10 years, going on to do kind of other jobs with them. It was as long as that, because when you first... Um when did you first run for the Dáil? I know you... 2000... So I first ran for the Dáil in 2007. Right. And I stood for the Dáil on three occasions before I got elected. Mm. So I stood in 07. Um, and, of course, that was a hugely successful election for Fianna Fáil and for Bertie Hearn. Yeah, and I was in Bertie's yeah, yeah, constituency. Yeah. I then stood in the by-election of 2009, uh, caused by the death of the late Tony Gregory. And then it was in 2011 that I got elected. Right. So I had three goals. Yeah. And my third attempt, I made it. Um, and have been there since, effectively. And and straight into government, which I guess is, uh, you know, for somebody who, who wants to get their hands on the levers and do things, um, you didn't really have to spend time in opposition. Well, my I was a member of the Senate before then, oh, yeah, when we were in opposition. But you're correct, when I was in the Doyle, I entered uh, with my party, Fine Gael, going into government. But we were going into government in the most uh, demanding and difficult circumstances because when obviously when we went in in 2011, we were at that point uh, uh, still in the midst of an economic yeah. collapse and we were in the bailout programme. still in the bailout programme at yeah, that time. And, and I would, I would always look back uh, on that period until the pandemic happened yeah. as being um, just this horrifically testing time. I mean, I can remember being in uh, the chamber in Doyle Air and mm. voting for budgets. And I could hear the protests against those yeah. budgets from the chamber. Do you know, I, one of the chats I had was with Paul Reid. Oh, yeah. And he was fascinating because he was, I, I think, working for... He um, was indeed. Uh, 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 Industrial uh, relations industry. for this department. Correct. So Paul, at that yeah. point, was overseeing the wage agreements that were cutting yeah. pay. And he had cut his teeth on the union side of those conversations. Yeah, and then he was on the other side yeah. of the table now. Um, and it, it they, was they, a crisis, was the... It was, and I mean, we, um, uh, you know, at times, because there's so much happening in our economy, so much happening in our society, all of these things are mm. covered intensively by media cycles that are always on. Uh, but we sometimes do need to take a step back and say, like, what were the moments of real test and crisis? Yeah. And that's... The pandemic, they were certainly those moments. They were. But they were, as you remember, Connor, they were, that was an incredibly demanding time. Many, many at that point were arguing that we were not going to get out of us, that we were well and truly banjaxed. Uh, and I was very lucky uh, to play a part in a government that, even though I had to make some horrendously tough decisions, yeah. we ultimately did get our way out of that bailout, thank God. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro. 
Make friends with innovation. And, and we've once again become a bit of a poster child and maybe some of that is false, we might come to that. But if you look at, say, 10 years in government with you and partners mm -hmm. and you never had a completely free hand, and if we take a sort of balanced scorecard approach to the last decade of Irish government, um, if you look at where Ireland scores on any international index covering you know, from quality of life to yeah. quality of uh, I, I heard the Taoiseach say recently, we're top 200 countries in the world, we're top 20 in most of those indices. Yeah. Something has clearly been done right. And if you look at the to-do list, there was the financial crisis, obviously. Mm. Uh, there were a series of, of, of challenges that you faced. Um, a fair-minded commentary would say that most of those challenges have been met well. Couple of big stains on the record though. Um, health mm -hmm. continues to be um, you know, immensely expensive yeah. and in, in sore need of reform. And the other one is housing. Mm -hmm. um, so you know the way the, the unfair parent sees a child come home with seven A's and a B and the question they ask is, what happened to B? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at Ireland over the last 10 years, what happened to housing? It was foreseeable, it, you know, it was a slow moving time bomb that, that, that everybody was aware of. What happened? Well, two things happened. Firstly, the property sector completely collapsed and we lost a generation of house building because of it. Mm. And I don't think you can uh, understand where we are in housing without also tracing it back to the fact that for the best part of a decade, we didn't have a construction sector. Mm. We didn't have a construction sector while our population was still growing and our economy was beginning to take off. And we've been fighting ever since to catch up with that. Mm -hmm. And then just as we were beginning to do it, uh, two other things happened. Then we firstly had to shut down our construction sector due to the pandemic. Yeah. And then just as we were about to reopen it, the cost of building everything went through the roof mm -hmm. because of what happened with the availability and the pricing of raw materials after the pandemic and then just as the war began. So, for example, the price of concrete, the price of timber, the availability yeah. of all of us stratospherically increased what? and and like what what i'm not looking to do is to look for an excuse mm. because you know i think you've offered a very fair-minded commentary of where we are at the mm. moment we've made progress on lots of things yeah but at the same time the most basic thing of can you afford a home do you have shelter do yeah. you confident that the home you're renting at the moment you'll be able to rent in the future? And For too many people, we're not meeting that test. And even if you can afford it, to see Dublin in the same sentence as Tokyo and Singapore and New York, it's clearly ludicrous. We should be, you know, our benchmarks are more your well, Munich's and Copenhagen's. I respectfully challenge that bit of it, though, because what we have in common with, what we don't have in common with those cities is our scale or the mm. fact that we're a large country. But what we do have in common with lots of the cities that we are compared to is the fact that we have an economy that has grown incredibly strongly, with the capital city being a big part of all of that. Yeah. But all, all that being said, uh, I absolutely accept that for too many, when they haven't done as well as they want in housing, and I feel that myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but that goes back to the greatest lesson uh, I've had in politics, and it's been my defining lesson that if a country becomes insolvent, and if a country particularly becomes insolvent because of a combination of a banking and property crisis, which is incredibly one of the most frequent reasons countries go and yeah. insolvent, yeah. Uh, so it's not an unexpected mm. insolvency event. If that happens, the consequences of it are truly appalling. 
and very hard to get out from under for some time, which has been my defining instinct then as a Minister for Finance. Yeah. Never to let ourselves anywhere near that kind of risk again. And, and yet we've been there twice in my sort of voting lifetime. We've um, been there twice in my lifetime, yeah. uh, if not my voting lifetime, which is why I'm all the more determined we don't get near that danger zone again. Yeah. Where I would differ with you on, if I may, is on the health piece. Mm. So let me again acknowledge uh, the things that frustrate people with our health service, yeah. how long it takes to get in. Sometimes what happens when you go into A&E and the cost so let me acknowledge, of course, they're really yeah. big issues. On the other hand, if you look at things in our lifetime, Connor, uh, a decade ago, if God forbid, after me meeting you, I had a heart attack or I had a stroke. Mm. A decade ago, they were health incidents that would have had an potentially an irreparable effect on your life, your standard of living, and how long you would live for. Now, if you look at what our hospitals are able to mm. do and what our primary care centres are doing, our life expectancy as a country has grown so much in our yeah. lifetime. And so much of that is attributable to uh, what we have done in our health service. Yeah. Well, mind you, I think that's true, but I, I think the, the comparator is how we compare to the international curve because, you know, progress is being made everywhere. But um, our life expectancy has grown quicker. It has. And as I say, if you look so at that's the ultimate those test. global indices, we, 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 we are unambiguously high yeah. in, in rankings across the piece. Yeah. All those quality of life indicators, good governance indicators, if you mm. like. Um, one of the reasons, uh, or certainly one of the um, aspects of Irish policy for the last 30 years are warm and enthusiastic engagement with Europe mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that was one of your early passions wasn't it you're a very much uh, European centrist I am and uh, I am so for uh, uh, lots of different reasons but I'll just only briefly highlight two of them because uh, I uh, it's a topic I feel really strongly about first one is uh, the uh, Europe the European Union is fundamentally a peace project. Mm. And if we ever needed reminding of that, it's we when we see now. what's happening now in Ukraine. It's fundamentally a peace project. The only generation ever to experience uh, a whole lifetime of, of European peace. It's, so it never happened in history. Never happened in history. Mm. And um, my mum and dad, your mum and dad, granted only as children, would have been aware of World War Two. Yeah. And... Um, I that has always struck me as having the most intrinsic and fundamental value, maybe because the drumbeat of growing up as a, uh, a, a kid here in Ireland was, of course, the troubles, the violence of that, yeah. and the unbelievable statesmanship and statescraft that was involved in ending that phase of our history. Mm. And that tone is what the European Union is all about. Yeah. And Kieran Cuff told me once that the, the, the tendency in national politics is to gravitate to extremes and cold bases. The tendency in Europe is to pull towards the centre. And it takes, it's the most unglamorous. Yeah. Uh, uh, it takes years to do it, but that is what it's about. 
I, and, I've, I've joked that where is the angry militant centre in Irish life? <laughs> well, the, the, the centre is under pressure for some of the reasons you've just raised with me, and we have to be able to make the case for us. But the European political centre perhaps is in better condition here mm. because no party can be in government in Ireland without an acceptance of the key fundamentals of the membership of the European Union. Well, now, Sinn Féin are late arrivals to that position. They have got there. But if they are aspiring to be in government, yeah. um, I'm certain they'll need to demonstrate to the Irish people uh, that they are, um, you know, recognise some of the facets of membership of the European Union. And that then just is another example then of the other reason why I, I think it's just the most extraordinary project which is it's been so good for Ireland. Oh, yeah. So good for Ireland. And even acknowledging, Connor, all the things that we have acknowledged here that we want to do better on. Mm. If you look at what it has meant for our civil, our political and our economic freedoms, it has been yeah. uh, transformative. Our my, national confidence fed into that as well. It did. And like if, if, if my kids decide at some point in their lives that they want to study elsewhere in Europe, if they want to work elsewhere in Europe, mm. They can literally go and do it. And that is something that is so precious to us. Yeah. It's something uh, other generations of Europeans didn't have. And perhaps as we see those freedoms not being available to the United Kingdom, it might underline the value of them uh, to us, which I, I think has already happened. I, I do, yeah, I was going to talk about sort of Brexit and Trump collectively, and if you feel there's a reason why Ireland has, um, to some degree, avoided the extremes of the national conversations that have occurred in those countries, um, at least in America, Trump had to be gone in four years. Now he may come back. Uh, Brexit, once they made the decision, it's it's a generational decision. Um, I know I've had lots of conversations with English people who really, really regret that decision. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on it? And do, do you discuss it even with English peers or British peers? Oh, it's constantly discussed. And uh, to say a word about the first part of your question there about why events like this have not yet happened in Ireland, I kind of attribute that to two factors. Mm -hmm. The first one is, and bear with me as I make the case for this, okay, because it's not an obvious argument. The first one is our voting system. It is next to impossible in Ireland to be continually elected to Dáil Éireann and only aspire to represent a small minority of public life. Like when I go forward to the people of Dublin Central to get elected, I have to get votes in every box. Mm. And you might be successful in getting elected once appealing to the extremes. Yeah. But to be continually elected, you have to get votes everywhere. And in the UK, of course, you, you dump 33% of the popular vote, which means two thirds of the country don't want you. And you wind up with a thumping majority. And their constituencies are defined in fundamentally different ways than ours because they're single seat constituencies. Yeah. But here in Ireland, um, it means that I have to be as attentive, which I would want to be and I am, to the person living in the, um, in the inner city flat complex as opposed to somebody living in a suburb within my constituency. Um, and that has a fundamental effect on our politics, combined with the fact that we're a small country. And because we're a small country, we're also avoiding the extremes mm. of wealth and poverty that other countries have. I think they are big factors 
in how we also avoided extreme political moments. But you can't take it for granted and you always have to make the case for the value of not being in the extremes. Yeah, and I, I think you also have to remember that um, we're not exceptional. No no group of humans is exceptional. We're all Mark One human beings on this island and as, as exposed to the sort of problems and flaws. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's 100% right. We always have to be aware of our imperfections and fragility and the power of uncertainty uh, in our lives personally, but definitely as a country. One of the things, though, I also think, though, that we don't sometimes attribute enough recognition of from our history mm-hmm. is the extraordinary record that we've had of the continuity of our democracy. Yeah. So we were forged, our democracy was forged at a very dangerous time in Europe and in mm-hmm. the world. And the fact that we have maintained that democracy... 100 years unbroken. 100 years unbroken. It's a lot rarer than we sometimes recognise. I, I, I had that chat with Dermot Ferriter on mm-hmm. exactly that point. And um, around about 1942-43, the sort of the low point for the Allies in the Second World War, the number of democracies left on the planet was down to about seven or eight. I mean, it, it, the flame almost went out. And indeed, and if you look at it even on a comparative level within Europe, our, um, our uh, unbroken democratic tradition Mm-hmm. The views that we have regarding our defence forces, our military, and the yeah. place they have in the civil hierarchy, our view on civil liberties and political pluralism, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps because there's such an ingrained part of our daily lives, yeah. we sometimes don't recognise that actually the continuity of that tradition I is... Mean- is a really important thing, and it's not the case everywhere. And, you know, we had been admired, in the, and I think we still are outside of our own country, but a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, uh, now European Union members, absolutely had the Republic of Ireland as their, as their model to follow. And completely, and one of the countries, one of the parts of Europe that I hold in such esteem is the, you know, the miracle of the Baltic Republics. Yeah. And by that I mean our countries like Lithuania, Latvia, mm-hmm. Estonia, who are in a, as, we, as your listeners and you will know so well, my God, they're in a very dangerous part of they Europe sure at the are, moment. Yeah. But they're also in very dangerous parts of Europe as uh, relatively new states, mm. all with large Russian minorities. Yeah. And what they have done with the maintenance of a democratic tradition, with what they have done with their economies and how they view Europe, they have looked and been very interested in what we have done to go on the same journey themselves. And, you know, we are very, very lucky uh, that we've had lots of great people from those great countries make Ireland their home, but it's Mm. equally phenomenal that many of those people, at least before the war happened, were going back to their countries because of the success in those countries reaching points of amazing economic and political development and they 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 as should our, inspire us at the moment as our, as ireland did 25 30 yeah. years before that and um, so we're something of a grown-up country now and um, we're we, you know the democracy is 100 years old and uh, we currently have loads of cash there's probably lots of things we could discuss about that you know whether uh, you know our the, the role of our army maybe we needed to step up and pay a bit more towards mutual defense um but let's not go down that rabbit hole you are in the happy situation um of of looking at what is it 16 billion euro um 
surplus this year uh, and having to get our head and our plans around having unbudgeted, temporary, but nevertheless very, very welcome um, surpluses coming in over the next few years. Yeah. Uh, you're working with Michael McGrath. To be fair to the two of you, you kind of are like, I'm, I'm not even sure where the, 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 the lines blur between the two ministries. It's been like one pair of hands, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, what are you going to do with the money? Well, I'm very fortunate to be uh, 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 confronting these choices with Minister McGrath, uh, who uh, uh, is uh, doing an exceptional job and uh, where um, thinks about these things in such a careful way. Uh, th- these surpluses, however, are not unbudgeted. Uh, and they have yet to happen also as well. Right. Uh, we expect our surplus for this year to be around €10 billion Euro, uh, and larger for next year. And I am aware, and I just want to acknowledge up front, what a difficult argument it is to make to people that yeah. we have this money, but we shouldn't spend it. Well, one of your predecessors famously said, when I have it, I spend it. And the argument against, of course, is that's pro-cyclical and uh, ultimately that costs us more than it saves us. And there is, that is a really big part of the argument why I believe we should not be spending all of that money, though we are spending a bit of it. Mm-hmm. And just on a very personal level, uh, Connor, you know, you were asking me about when I entered politics in that period around 2011 and I talked about what it was like during that time. Again, my defining experience as a politician has been around when we ran out of money. Yeah. And these surpluses that are coming in are a result of our corporate tax policy Mm. that I crafted over many years. They're a result of how we've engaged with this big global process on corporate tax reform. Yeah. And I am as certain uh, as I am that I'm certain I'm sitting here talking Mm. to you that at a point in the future, that money will no longer be around. Yeah, that's what I meant by unbudgeted. Yeah, and, to more accurately so, say that we know it's temporary. Yeah, I know it's temporary. And the reason why is that tax is a share of a really large amount of profits that a small number of companies are making. Mm. And at a point in the future, just because of the business cycle, just because of what happens in yeah. commerce, just to what happens in the global economy, those companies won't be as profitable tomorrow as they are today. Mm. And uh, that is why running a surplus, I think, is so important. But then by also by running a surplus, it doesn't mean we don't spend all of it. We do spend, yeah. spend some of us, which we're planning to do in this budget. But again, what that will mean then is for you and I later in life, not to mention the generation mm. that are a little younger than us, they won't be then facing the predicament that we faced earlier in our life, which is the cost of servicing our national debt. Yeah. then crowds out all the other things you want to do, like spending money on childcare, spending money on education. And again, uh, you said you've been around twice when that happened. Yeah, I remember I remember in the 80s, the, the background noise to the narrative was the size of the national debt, the size of the national debt. It's 224 billion now. Yeah. Well, the economy is much larger. Um, so spend a bit, uh, maybe pay down some debt, um, what about a sovereign wealth fund? We had one before and it got blown out like a candle when the crisis came along. Yep. So we have at the moment a national reserve fund at the moment that has six billion euro in us. Uh, we can sometimes, because our economy has got so big, like six billion euro mm. is just a colossal amount of money. 
And uh, for anybody who is a kind of a student of economic history yeah. like you, you obviously are a student of our political history, you know, political crises and difficult choices were made in the past about yeah. figures, a fraction of that. Yeah. We already have that set aside. And one of the things that Minister McGrath has brought forward proposals on is to be uh, perhaps a little crude about it, he has said, Let's put some of that money aside into a fund. Mm-hmm. Let's invest that fund in things that matter to our long-term future. When you do that, you make a return in the short term through dividends, yeah. through money you get back from investments that you've made. And then he said, let's spend that return. So it's not a case of saying we're going to lock this money away and forget about it yeah. and not benefit at all from it in the short term. The case he's making, which I completely agree with, is that we would invest that money, invest that money in a way that would help us in a few years' time. Mm. But the return that we would get in the short term, we would then use, for example, to help with the costs involved in our country getting a bit older, which it's doing at the moment. Yeah. And uh, that the, the crunch for all of that will come in the budget, and it's absolutely the right thing to do, mm. and I'll be making the case for it as well. Okay, and we'll be, you know, expect lots of leaks about the budget over the next. Not from here. Well, from me, not from here. Definitely not. I'll ask the bobbleheads. (laughs) Yeah, and bobbleheads are privy to an awful lot of stuff. If those bobbleheads could speak, if they could speak, you know, I remember back in the day, the budget actually was held secret, and uh, you know, big press events at Buzzwells when various things were announced. I I think long since now, every dot and comma of it has leaked in advance, and maybe that's appropriate because it's an annual budget, and we've got you know a bigger. And lots of people's involved in it as well. Yeah, and. You know, a little you know, something for everybody in the audience. That's the nature of the politics. But we actually have bigger concerns than our annual budget, particularly now that we, you know, have some cash and it's not and, it, and it's not loaves and fishes. One of your responsibilities in this department is the National Development Plan, um, and that's supposed to be a hundred what is it, hundred and sixty-five billion over for 10 this year years. alone. It's just over twelve billion euro. Um, are we spending that? Um, and I, I guess. Why are the public seeing more of it? It's a slightly unfair comparisons, but I've been looking at schematics of Dublin's metro system for 30 years. Yeah. I've been looking at it since before Madrid said, do you know what, let's build a metro. And they've built it, opened it, extended it, they're extending it again. We're still looking at PowerPoints. When does the sense of urgency that applied during COVID apply to the spending of this money. I mean, I won't go to Children's Hospital, but you, there will be public scepticism about our ability to spend this money quickly and properly. So I, I, the comparison that I genuinely don't believe is appropriate is COVID. And the reason why I don't believe that's appropriate is we can look back on the powerful single choices that we made mm-hmm. at that period. But, and I think this is a good thing, yeah. Allowed to recede into the background the incredible friction and consequences of those powerful choices. Mm. And we were making priority decisions at that time where we said we will do this and we will not do lots of other things yeah. that had real consequence, real, real difficulty for lots of people. But we could justify doing it because we were trying to stop people dying. Yeah. And on our balance scorecard, to be fair, COVID in the round was handled well here. I hope Again, so. Again, by international standards, I hope broadly so. pretty I, well. I hope so. But I'll never forget the, the, the magnitude of the challenge we all faced during that period. 
But that being said, while I would differ with your benchmark, I do take your point mm. regarding this bit, regarding really mega projects in, uh, in Ireland. And the point that you make regarding like Spain, not only have they extended the metro they did build, but mm. to the best of my knowledge, they've built other ones. Yeah, Barcelona as well. Completely. Yeah. And we've never done that. Yeah. So, Incidentally, I believe one of the reasons why they're able to do it better than us or faster than us is there are still a lot of laws on the Spanish statute books that date from the Franco era. And you can imagine how big Franco was on public consultation when he wanted a project. Low on consultation, big on infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that hasn't happened uh, here, here in Ireland with regard to a public transport project. And I might try and explain why in a moment. On the other hand, the National Broadband Plan, which has now been rolled out successfully mm. at the moment, is a project that is comparable to a very big public transport project because of the impact it will have. And that's happening at the moment. And then the re and then, then again the metro. I, I remember vividly the last time we tried to do a metro mm. uh, in 07, 08, 09. It's been government policy to build a Dublin metro since 07. I think. And why didn't it happen? It didn't well, happen because the global financial crisis and yeah. we ran out of money. And in effect, we stopped spending capital on capital mm. because we were trying to avoid even more horrendous choices on things like social welfare yeah. and pensions. And a consequence of that, again, is that we haven't caught up. Yeah. Uh, that period and the period leading up to that terrible crisis was the period during which Ireland was acquiring the economic capacity to do things like our National Roads Project, which yeah. we did very, very well, and things like the Metro. And we then stopped. And mm. um, my big lesson from all of that, and it's certainly a lesson that Minister Ryan has, is we always have to keep on planning. We always have to have big public transport projects that are about to go. And we have to do whatever it takes that if we do get hit by another big shock, mm. we're able to keep projects like that ticking over and not stop them. Because the consequence of that then is felt acutely when they're not moving forward. Um, I, I think if the whole country collectively accepted every word you said and wanted to give one word back to you, it would be faster, mm. faster for all the stuff that we want to do, whether it's planning that's becoming it or legal challenges or consultation, surely faster is... is, is and and we are, we, we've made lots of changes in our planning law, but we still live in a democracy. Mm. And if somebody wants to object to a metro demolishing their home, we have to recognise their right to do that. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the, what we need to do better on uh, is the organisations and the processes that are involved in allowing those rights to be exercised and then arbitrated. Organisations like Comporpanola need uh, 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 a, a lot of help and a lot of support to be able to do that work quicker. And we're trying to provide for that to them at the moment. Well, there you go. So the, 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 the quick solution is to just suspend democracy for a while <laughs> so we can do some of the right things with all of this cash. Certainly um, something that neither you and I would advocate, no, I advocate would we? I know. One of those classic where the, where the remedy is worse than the disease. Um, so you're, you're not always that terribly serious because you do, you, you do keep um, a, a degree of balance in your life. I think I commend you as a minister who's got such a high profile role over the years that actually your private life is quite private. 
Um, but I know you like a gig. Um, I, I like. I'm. I'm I, I know you're an avid book reader. What, what What do you manage to do when you can sneak out of the office? I read. Uh, I read every night for twenty or thirty minutes, uh, and I've maintained that discipline throughout public life. I'm a huge book lover. Uh, I'm uh, all sorts: pulpy novels, historical n- fiction, nerdy everything. Nearly everything. Yeah, I'm a very big reader. And in fact, I was only shuddering this morning looking at the side, number of books by the side of my bed, yeah, yeah, Connor. Yeah. Uh, but I'm one of these people that know that the, uh, the, the solution to having too many books to read by the side of your bed is to buy more to and buy get more. more. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. And uh, I, I do have a lot of interest. So I think I'm just very normal with regard to that. I'm a, 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 a huge football fan Spurs um, I believe greatest football club in the world oh my lord our day is coming yeah. our day is coming your day has been coming for a good 50 years and now. that is just proof of our greatness uh, but it, it will uh, come was, was, was it Ozzy Ardiles and Ricky Villa were they the ones it was actually no it was the kind of a little just after that Glenn uh, Hoddle Glenn Hoddle uh, Paul Stewart Gary Mabbas oh yeah and as for all reasons it goes back to the reason I ended up supporting them is my neighbours supported them then right. my brother supported them. Then I ended up supporting them. And like on a Saturday uh, afternoon now, as you know, Spurs will be playing Man United. That's right, yeah. Half five, I'm expecting. M- making, making most of the world Spurs fans for 90 minutes. Anyway. For 90 minutes, you know, Spurs, uh, Man United just barely bet Wolves there last weekend on Monday night. Uh, we had a good outing, 2 all draw against Brentford. Mm. And it set up nicely for the Postacoglu regime to get a big boost. Yeah. Without, and I'm without, confident that will happen. Without Harry Kane, of course. Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, Harry Kane's now gone off to Munich, to Bayern Munich, and he has been an incredible servant to Tottenham Hotspur. In fairness. And I wish him, uh, not, that, not that he cares in the slightest regarding yeah, what I think, uh, but as a, humble, as a humble, humble Spurs fan, he was a great servant, but I think I know what his plan is. So his plan is, he's going to go to Bayern Munich. Mm. Um, German league is a lot tougher than I think it's getting credit for at yeah, the moment. Yeah. But he, he should win a few German titles, a few German cups. I hope he's successful League. in the Champions League. Yeah. So he will do that for a few years. And then these guys are now super fit in the yeah. way that their predecessors were. longer, yeah. He'll come back to Spurs in his mid-30s. And Unless then, he's in Miami or Saudi Arabia. But before he goes to Miami, he will come back just when we are in the final phase of the glory that is approaching <laughs> us. He will lead us on to another reign of winning trophies and he'll break, of course, Alan Shearer's record at that point of the 260 goals. Fantastic. Just before Haaland then smashes it all and scores like five million goals well you know it's good to see that that's all as well worked out as the national <laughs> you know exactly John, I've hit upon the solution Pascal it, Ireland establishes a sovereign wealth fund uses it to buy spurs and takes on the Saudis what do you think I think that would be a great investment uh, <laughs> but I imagine there would be many Man United and Liverpool fans who uh, might might decide money could be better spent elsewhere. Do you know what? We'll have to suspend democracy as well then. Well, it, it, it would certainly be, can you imagine now on Butcher Day if I stood up and announced 
that as part of our national development plan, we were announcing a long-term investment in Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, now, that would be something, that would be a secret worth keeping for Budget Day. Pen- pencil that in for, <laughs> April. Pencil that in for April the 1st next year. Actually, catch a couple of them out. Um, listen, Pascal, Minister, you're really good to talk to me. I've, no. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, well, I've really enjoyed this. Hope it's of uh, interest to your listeners. And uh, thanks very much for having me on. Well, continued success for all our sakes. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you. So that's Pascal Donoghue. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Let me know if you have any thoughts on the podcasts. Get in touch on connorfalknan at gmail.com. Do remember that you can access the full Driving Life archive of previous episodes at seniortimes.ie. Thanks again to Doro Mobile Phones and to Expressway Buses. And we're done. Drive safely, live happily, and come back and see us again. An will phone poke a newowet, an will knappy no fum nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj, faker na phone in toka ta gwin, on show, egg daro, an von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina, ta rod egen, gogachtina, ta nismo olis, egg, daro, dot com.